Amen. Thank you so much for sharing that song this morning, and uh, thank you for your invitation to be with you today. Uh, as introduced earlier, I'm, I'm Brian Davis. I uh, work at the Baptist State Convention over in Cary. I live over in Wendell, so I think I tracked it. It was exactly nine miles from my house here to the church today, so thank you for letting me stay local, because a lot of times I drive a much longer distance when I go to preach on Sunday mornings. But uh, let me thank you for being one of the 4,300 churches that comprise the Baptist State Convention in North Carolina. And it's together what you're doing in this community, what you do in cooperation with other churches across this county association, and what together we're doing together uh, as a state convention is impacting North Carolina and it's impacting the world. I hope you recognize that out of roughly 9 million residents of our state, 58 are estimated to have no relationship with Jesus Christ whatsoever. And that comes out of research where people are self-identifying and saying, we have no connection with the church, we have no belief in any religion. That's not from what we're identifying, that's people who are self-identifying. And so if people are to the point that they say, I will be glad to fill out the bubble on the census and say, I have no relationship with the church, I have no connection with the religion, that means they're pretty steadfast in what they say they don't believe. But the good news is you are part of a church that believes not only something, believes in someone, and that someone is the risen Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And so I'm glad to be worshiping here with you today. Let me just say a, a word of, uh, this, is this being recorded? Let me just say a word to the, to the greatest pastor in eastern Wake County <laughs> who could not be with us today. But, but Jared Scott is someone I've come to know in my work with the convention. But Jared is more than one of the many acquaintances I have across the state. He's a good friend. Jared and I work closely together. You granted him great, um, a great blessing allowing him to serve on our board of directors. Uh, every member of our board represents 10,000 North Carolina Baptists. And so Jared represented a great number of people in, in great fashion. He served not only on our board, but he was on our executive committee, and he was a chair of our Christian Life and Public Affairs Committee. And one of my duties is to give consultation and advice and support to all three of those groups. And so I got to work with him a great deal and came to greatly appreciate and love him. Uh, you know him as a great pastor, a strong preacher, but I know him as a great leader among North Carolina Baptists. So thank you for giving him uh, the blessing of the time to invest because he's making a difference across the state in the leadership that he provides on these committees and on these boards. Uh, just, just, just the briefest little bit about me. I don't want you to think, oh, no, we've got some administrator who's coming today. He won't be able to preach out of a wet paper bag. Um, before I was called to come work at the convention, I've been with the convention now for about eight years. Uh, I pastored for 14 years, primarily in the western part of the state. And so my wife reminds me that I work in town and I need to clean my accent up. But I'm from the mountains. I've preached in the mountains. It comes out and I'm sorry. And, uh, and so I know the way that you look at me when you don't understand me. Remember, that's the way I look at you when I don't understand you sometimes. But uh, with that, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua and go to the very end of Joshua. Joshua 24 is where we're going to give our attention this morning. If you go to Judges and swing a left, that's okay, because uh, you're, you're mighty close to Judges when you go to jo Joshua 24. But Joshua 24 is where we're going to turn our attention. We're going to read the first 15 verses, but I'm going to be honest with you, we're really going to focus on one of them. But because the context for the passage is set in the first 13 verses, I want us to read uh, the first 13 verses, and you follow along your copy of God's Word as I read along. We read, Then Joshua 
gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. When you read that, you need to listen up because this is God speaking from this point. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, who dwelt on the other side of the river, that's the Jordan River, in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, and I led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them, and afterward I brought you out of Egypt. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen all the way to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel. And he sent and called to Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore he continued to bless you, so I delivered you out of his hand. Well, then you went over to Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Gergites, excuse me, the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out and from you and before you, and also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities for which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading and the preaching and, dare I say, the hearing and the heeding of his word this morning. Joshua chapter 24, it's the very end of the book. In the first 13 verses, God is saying through Joshua to the people, let me remind you where you've come from. Let me remind you what I've been doing in your midst. Let me remind you all of the blessings I poured out upon not only you as a people, but you individually. Let me remind you of how your tribes, how your tribal leaders, how your officers have been given great wisdom. Let me remind you how your leaders have spoken, thus saith the Lord. Let me remind you of the miraculous and wondrous deeds I've done in your presence. Let me remind you how I have delivered you from the very hand of your enemies, oftentimes without you having to even draw a sword or raise a bow. Let me remind you of what I've done for you. That's what's going on in those first 13 verses. 
Then we get to verses 14 and 15, which is where I really want to focus this morning. It comes down to this very simple phrase. Choose you this day. You this day. You and all of the, of the multiplicity of the people. You and all of the tribes. You and all of the people. But also you individually and singularly. And God says today, just as he did then, for you, not only the fullness of this community, not only the fullness of this congregation, but you individually, choose you, whom will you serve? Joshua says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But the question is, who, to whom will you give glory? To whom will you bow down? Who will you choose to serve this day? That word choose, it is the key word in the final chapter of the book of Joshua. Beautiful word in the Hebrew. It carries with the idea of taking not only a, a deep look at and not only imply testing and examining and joining, but it's this all, it also requires an ongoing action. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, I hope you'll hear this because I'm going to say it over and over again. Your choice to follow Jesus is an ongoing action. It is not something that you just make one time in the past and forget about it and lay it aside and never give it attention again. It is an ongoing action that must impact every single other decision you make and impact you each and every day of your life in both the serious things and in the silly things. My oldest son, I'm married. My wife and I have, have, uh, have, um, have enjoyed, I didn't, I didn't say endure, I said enjoyed 23 years of wonderful marriage. And we have two sons, they're 19 and 14. The 19-year-old just celebrated a birthday over the weekend. We were reminiscing over a, a variety of different things of his life. And, and one of the stories that came up was, Daddy, you remember the time you took me to preschool when I was really, really late? And you had a decision to make? I knew exactly which day he was talking about. The church I was pastoring at the time had a uh, preschool, much like you have a preschool. And you may have rules in, line, in order similar to what we had. Parents are supposed to, in an orderly way, enter one area of the parking lot, bring their children to a specific place. They are to only release that child into the care of one of the employees and then proceed back out another exit in an orderly fashion. And so one Friday morning, I was taking the day off, and I had not gotten up early enough to really prepare myself uh, to go to church because I wasn't going to church that day. But then I realized I needed to prepare myself to take my son to preschool. I did not even get up early enough to do that. And so I did something that I wasn't sure it was the best thing to do, but I did it anyway. I threw on my bathrobe, and I took off for church. And I thought, well, I'll get there in just enough time. They'll grab him out the door. They won't pay any attention to me, and I'll drive on around the building, and everything will be fine. But no, I did not arrive in time to meet the teachers. And we had a rule that, again, you could only release the child into the presence, into the uh, possession of one of the employees of the preschool. And so since there was none there, the protocol was, parents, if you're that late, park, get out, and walk them in. So when I arrived at that door and it didn't open, because the children were gone, the employees were gone, they were all in the classroom, I had a decision to make. Did I dare shove him out the door and say, I'll see you after a while, buddy? Or do I confidently get out bird legs and all, slippers and all, and walk him in? And I said, I'm going to walk him in. But I tried to cheat just a little bit. 
we had a, a special entrance just for the, the preschool. And I thought, well, if I come in this other entrance, I'll come by the office because it's before the office opens and our church secretary, Linda's not going to be there. So I swung back around. I came in the front door and Linda was not there. But Libby was. Now, Libby was a, a blessed senior adult lady who was just volunteering to fill in for Linda that day. And she had never seen her pastor's bathrobe before. She had never seen her pastor's knees before. She certainly did not realize he wore those kinds of uh, bedroom shoes. But uh, I had no choice. I just confidently strode right in, said, good morning, Libby, and walked him straight to class. Terrible choice. Poor choice. Silly choice. Man ought to know better than that. Man called of God to preach the gospel ought to know better than that, right? Hey, you make some silly choices every day as well, don't you? But, you know, there's some serious choices we've got to give careful attention to. Many churches are wrestling with choices today that will literally determine whether they are here 20 years ago, 20 years from now or not. There are so many churches that are on the verge of closing their doors. So many churches that are in such a survival mode, they literally are to the point they can barely pay the power bill. And if you're not in one of those churches, you need to thank the Lord because there are thousands of churches that are finding themselves in that situation because of the choices that they make and they are closing their doors every single year. I was at a meeting Friday night, a meeting that had nothing to do with church growth, a meeting that had nothing to do with a vision casting or mission, mission development for a church. Actually, I was at a meeting that was to celebrate 40 years of ministry for uh, the Baptist State Convention in what we call our happiness retreats, where we were working with developmentally disabled adults. But in the midst of that, I had a pastor come to me just absolutely broken. I need to talk to you about the church I'm serving. I'm in a church that I've only been there a few years, but it's obvious. Go back and look at their history. A generation ago, they were running over a 1,000. They were sending so much to missions. They were commissioning missionaries out. It was the place to be in our city. Doctors and lawyers and leaders in town, they all flocked to this church. But something happened a number of years ago. And the community began to change. And all the, the wealthy and well-established white folks moved out. And all kinds of different folks began to move in. Folks who weren't born here, folks who didn't speak the language, folks who didn't work in the same places. It didn't matter. The reality was that those who had comprised the congregation for so long left... And the church was faced with a number of choices. And sadly, the church chose foolishly. And rather than begin to engage the, with the gospel, all the new people that God was bringing them, and making a commitment to, to lead them to Christ so they could become disciples who were in turn making disciples who were in turn making disciples, they declared, this is my church, and no one will come in here unless they look and sound like us. And so now there's just a small handful who are well beyond their retirement years. And they're dwindling because they're dying. And the church is only propped up, a big, beautiful, magnificent facility, propped up off of the dividends of endowments because the tithing of the people can't even pay the power bill. And the pastor says, how can we help this congregation make choices so that they'll actually be here 10 to 15 years from now? That's the reality of what's taking place in far too many places. In far too many communities. But let's get real personal for a moment. Some people in this room this morning made a decision for Jesus Christ many, many years ago. 
Maybe it was in a Bible school. Maybe it was at a revival or some kind of crusade. Maybe it was even in the living room of your home where a godly parent prayed with you. But that's a decision you made long ago and it's had no bearing whatsoever on your life today. You need to make a choice today. You need to make a series of choices in the days to come. Because that little light is still glowing and shimmering. But it's very, very dim in your life. And that light needs to be fed so that it will continue to shine brightly in a generation to come. Because, folks, we live in a day, the sociologists tell us that any time there's an institutional change that persists over three generations, that that institution begins to disappear from a society. And we are now living in the day, and we're seeing the fruit of changes in our society 40 years ago that led to a generation that disconnected, and their children disconnected, and their children have disconnected. And so the next generation will know nothing of the gospel because they've been disconnected from the church and from Christianity. James Emery White wrote a book called The Rise of the Nuns. Those that when asked what religious affiliation you have, the answer is none. That is the largest growing sociological group in America. And while you might be tempted to think that's off in a far off place, Wake County is included in that area. And while you may be tempted to think, well, that's all Raleigh, no, Nightdale is included in that area. Joshua has something to say to us today about choices. If you look with me, please, at, at Joshua 24, verse 14. If we can grasp these three truths, it will impact our ability to make wise choices. Wise choices, even when it appears to be silly at the onset, and most certainly when it appears to be serious at the onset, we must be equipped to make wise choices. In verse 14, this is what God says through Joshua about our choices. Now, therefore, here's the first choice, fear the Lord. That first choice that we have to make is dealing with the Lord. How will we respond to him? Will we fear him or not? Now, the concept of fear in the Bible has two different expressions. There is fear when it, as it comes to terror, being scared out of your daylights. I mean, you're on the front row of the front car coming down the biggest roller coaster at the theme park, and you're about to scream so loudly your voice is going to disappear kind of fear. But then there's also fear that is reverent fear, a fear of awe and honor. You know, the problem is there's been times in my life that I was afraid of my daddy in one sense, but not in the other. But the reality is, in this passage, Joshua is saying, we need not be terrified of God, but we must honor him and revere him and submit and surrender to him. Joshua knew that if the people would first choose to fear and revere the Lord, then they would be positioned and had the foundation for making good and godly choices and decisions in other areas. So how about you this morning? Do you fear, and by that, do you revere the Lord? Until you do, you're going to have a very difficult time making choices that are going to please God. And until you do, you're going to have a difficult time making choices that will keep you in the will of God. Are you lacking the wisdom and discernment necessary to make good choices? The Bible says very clearly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. 
So just as Joshua was challenging the, uh, the men and women and boys and girls of that day, I want to challenge this congregation today. Fear the Lord. Make a willful and deliberate decision that I'm going to honor God. I'm going to revere Him. I'm going to give Him the glory that He and He alone deserves. In so doing, you'll be making the first step that will equip you to make wise decisions from here on out. But secondly, notice what we see here in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, but he doesn't stop there. Then he says, serve him in sincerity and in truth. Now, the word serve in the Hebrew, I love this word. It's a beautiful word. Yes, it involves laboring. It involves working. It it means to bring about. It it means to, to be bound to complete something. It also means to compel. It carries the idea of cultivating, but it also carries the idea of worship. But more importantly... Just as the idea of fearing the Lord is not a one-time decision, but a continual action, so is serving the Lord. As a pastor, I don't know how many times I talked to some dear saint about helping us in a particular ministry, and they'd say, Brother, I've already done my time. Brother, I've already worked in the nursery. Brother, I've already worked in the Sunday school. I did Bible school last year. I went on a mission trip such and such time in the past. I did this. I did that. It's not about what you did. It's about what you did, you are doing, and shall do as you continue to serve the Lord in sincerity and truth all your live long days. Serving the Lord is not a one and done proposition. We are to be doing it continually. Joyfully, I might add, got to keep the nursery, got to keep the nursery, got to keep the nursery. Goodness gracious. I remember Richard Jackson, who was a pastor of North Phoenix Baptist Church in Phoenix, Arizona, an enormous church, 10,000 in attendance when he retired as pastor. The very first week after he retired, people started looking, where's Brother Richard? Where's Brother Richard? They got looking around for him. They saw his car. They knew he was there. Guess where they found him? Not in a coat and a tie, but wearing his cowboy boots and a pair of jeans, laid in the floor with a bunch of slobbering toddlers. What was he doing? Serving the Lord. You know, when it comes to serving, in this passage, we're talking about working and laboring. But, but I shared all those other meanings of the word, the expressions of the word, because if you and I are going to fulfill our command to service the Lord, then we need to be seeking and doing all kinds of work and all kinds of labor for him. Yes, we need to be working and laboring to execute his commands, but we need to be compelling others to serve the Lord. And we need to be cultivating the fields and leading others to Jesus and helping them to grow, become disciples, and helping them become disciples who make disciples. And we need to be worshiping the Lord. All of these things need to be a part of who we are, not just what we do. But then he gets... Real specific. And he says, serve the Lord, verse 14, he says, in sincerity and in truth. And when you talk about something being sincere, it's talking about having integrity. It's talking about being complete. It's talking about being undefiled and upright. Is that the way that we serve the Lord? You know, if you're serving the Lord out of selfishness, you're not being sincere. If you're serving the Lord out of pride, you're not being sincere. You're serving the Lord while stained with secret, unconfessed, and continual sin. You're not doing so with sincerity. And then he says the truth. This idea of truth in the Hebrew, it means certain. 
with assurance, well-established. It is right. It is well-founded and grounded. Is that the way we serve the Lord? If your yes is not yes, and your no is not no, and people can't count on you, you don't follow through with your commitments, if you're more worried about social and critical... uh, social and political correctness, if you're always waffling and wavering and you just can't decide, you're not serving him in truth. So let us commit ourselves this day, not only to fear him and honor him, but let us commit to serve him and, and to be the kind of servants that when they, someone sees our name on the line, that we're going to be there, they know we're not only going to be there, we're going to be there and stay to the very end to make sure that we've accomplished the task that God has set before us. But then verse 14 has one more very, very critical point. Put away, well, now therefore, fear the Lord God, serve him in sincerity and truth, and do what? And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river. Serve the Lord. You know, the first two are compelling enough, but the third one, as the old timers say, plows a little close to the corn. Put away other gods. What are your other gods? Well, no, I don't have any other gods. I'm in here. I mean, you don't dare sit in here if you have other gods, right? Well, I named the name of Jesus. I can't practice idolatry and do that, can I? Well, my goodness, I I walked the aisle. I've been baptized. Hey, I may have been baptized even more than once. Tony Evans says it this way. If you go into the baptistry with other gods in your pocket, you go in a a dry devil and come out a wet devil. Other gods abound in our society, and if we're honest, in our homes, and if we're real honest, in our churches, and if we're real honest, they abound in the pews of this building this morning. There are so many gods with little g's vying for our attention today, and sometimes they're the cutest cutest people in the church, the most precious people in the church, and we turn them into idols. And we worship our children and grandchildren. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care and we shouldn't provide and we shouldn't minister. But our ultimate devotion is to the one true living God, not our children or our grandchildren. And a lot of Christian homes are making idols out of the very gifts that God has given them because everything, everything, and everyone comes second to Junior or Missy. And that's not the model we have in Scripture. As parents, we are to look first and foremost to God. We're supposed to fear and honor God. We're supposed to serve and work for God. Not our children or grandchildren. Sometimes the idols that we worship are the titles that are on our desk at work or the titles that are on the line where we work or the titles in the warehouse or the titles in the factory or the titles wherever it is that we work. We're yearning and working and striving to climb a corporate ladder and we'll put everything to the side and we'll knock anybody off the rung that's ahead of us just to get ahead. We've turned that into an idol. Sometimes it's a favorite possession. Sometimes it is our primary residence, and sometimes it is a secondary or weekend residence. Sometimes it's a possession that that we actually need, but we turn it into an idol because we put everything 
aside to take care of that one possession, to guard that possession, to grow that possession. And the average church today, the average congregation is full of Christians who are practicing idolatry. And it's so simple because our our culture feeds that. Our, Our culture lifts up idols. It lifts up idolatry. It lifts up what the Old Testament calls spiritual harlotry. But yet we are commanded and we're called and we're commissioned to serve no other gods because no one can serve God and mammon, God and any other possession. You will love one and hate the other. So Jesus says, choose you who you're going to serve, God or mammon. Joshua says, choose you this day who you're going to serve, the gods of this land or the God who did all this wonderful delivering for you. Don't you ever forget what God has done for you. Because if you do, then you will be sorely tempted to embrace the idols of the land. And that's why Joshua took all that time. That's why God took all that time to speak through Joshua to say, here's what I've done for you. Don't forget about this. Honor this. Because it's going to remind you of the most important decision and choice of all. You know, when I was a a kid, because school was getting ready to start back, I hated to bring that up, but it is. The one event that I hated most of all during the school year, it came once a month. It was the monthly fire drill. Because it didn't matter what you were doing. In kindergarten, it didn't matter what you were finger painting. In first grade, it didn't matter what you were doing in the gym. In second grade, it didn't matter how well you were beating another team on the dodgeball court. In the third grade, it didn't matter how well you were winning at kickball. It didn't matter what you were doing anywhere. It didn't matter if you were at lunch in the fourth or fifth grade. You had to drop what you were doing and go get in the special line to go to the special place outside of the building because of the fire drill. Dear friend, I'm issuing an alarm to you today. We've got to fear the Lord and serve Him and put away any and every other competing interest because It is imperative that we understand the days are growing short and the land is growing darker. And who knows how much longer we'll have until Christ appears and those who have followed him, those who have feared him, those who have served him in sincerity and truth, those who have put away the other gods, when Christ appears, they shall be called up and called out gloriously. But those who have not, will endure that which is to come. And Christ can appear at any moment. He could do so even today. He could do so if he chose, if and only if he chose, before we even complete this service. So how much longer will you put off making the decisions that you and only you can make about your life, about all that God has given to you, How much longer are you going to put off making those choices to lay aside the secret sins? How much longer are you going to put off the choices of really spending time with your children and helping them to understand your faith and helping them to grow in their faith so they can become disciples who make disciples? How much longer are you going to put off sharing with that neighbor who they've made it clear their religion is none? How much longer? 
choose you this day. Tell me who you will serve. But as for me and my house, I want to, jo I want to join Joshua. We will serve the Lord.